0: this call that we try to embody at SCC to be a kingdom of priests. When we say young pastors, we kind of just mean everybody, right? Make a little bit of sense? All of us who seek to follow Jesus and to do his will to become more and more like him, becoming like the one who is the shepherd, who is the pastor, in a way, are pastors. He wrote this, in retrospect, thinking about his many years of life, I think the two things that preserved the uniqueness of pastor for me, and that's a phrase that he defines basically as himself, right? The two things that preserved me were worship and family. I knew in my gut that the act of worship with the congregation every week was what kept me centered and that it needed to be guarded vigilantly. Nothing could be permitted to dilute or distract from it. And I knew that the family provided the only hope I had of staying grounded, faithful, personally relational in the daily practice of sacrificial love. And he goes on to say, the daily inescapable reality is that in neither of these areas, worship or family, are we And you'll feel this in complete control. So in these coming weeks around Christmas, the celebration of God coming to us, Emmanuel, God with us, in his son Jesus, we're going to be talking about family. This thing that we are most definitely not in control of. Amen? (laughs) Who here thinks they have the most control of their family? Anybody? Hands buried into the ground. Anyone parents? Yeah? (laughs) That's all I need to say, I think. Anyone have parents? (laughs) See? Yeah, we feel it. We get it. But there's something about family, this sort of chaotic, uncontrollable thing that is of immense importance. And there's something about this season that I believe is immensely important for us as we consider it. I don't know what that is yet. I don't know why God is forcing us to talk about family for the next handful of weeks. But he's going to. And we're going to. And we're going to to take this thing seriously. And we're going to talk about nuclear family. But even more so, we're going to talk, and we'll get on this a little bit today, about family really as sacrament. So I'll get to that. Before, I want us to go back together, if you'll come with me, to the beginning. Or rather, the end of the beginning. Before Jesus came, the very last verse of the entire Old Testament. It's got to be pretty significant. It closes the whole thing, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. Turn with me to Malachi chapter four verse six. God's people were formed, <clears throat> first in a person named Adam, who was said by God to need a helper. It's not good for man to be alone, is the words. All of Genesis, then, is largely about a family, the family of Abraham. And then we get the people in the Exodus of Israel who are supposed to be brought together as God's bride, again, this family image. We get the family of David, this lineage concept, and we get his sons, and his sons are horrific. The prophets come. They try to return the people to the heart of the Lord, but the people are sent into exile. The people are returned to Israel from exile in grace, and yet the prophets continue to speak, continue to speak, continue to speak, because something is off, until the very last words close the Old Testament that leave us in anticipation of Christ are these. He, the Lord, will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Let's read it again. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. What does the Old Testament end with? It's a few things. One, it's a statement. What's the state of families? If this is the reality that needs to be spoken. Divided. Broken. Two, what's the thing that God is going to do in order to restore families? Not destruction. That's what he's trying to avoid. (laughs) He's going to restore families. He's going to restore hearts. In other words, the whole Old Testament concludes with a cliffhanger that says families are not well. I'm going to make family well. The promise wasn't about some sort of like spiritual salvation kind of ambiguously. The promise wasn't even about the land that God promised to his people. This promise wasn't even about the nation of Israel. It doesn't talk about kings. It doesn't talk about kingdoms. Obviously, these things are important to God. It talks About family. And look at that last line. Just to address it. (laughs) Or else I'll come and strike the land with total destruction. Other translations read total destruction as a curse. Anyone remember from Galatians chapter 3 what's in my head? Can you mind read? We just got out of Galatians. What has Christ become for us? Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In other words, did God strike the land with a curse, with total destruction? He did. Who bore it? Jesus. And in that redemptive work, what is Jesus Christ doing He's turning the hearts of parents to their children and children to their parents. He's restoring family. He's renewing family. The curse being broken on Jesus Christ is an act of aggressive renewal, of aggressive restoration, of what it means to be the family that God has called us to be to one another. It's about family. Like I said, the book of Genesis, it begins with the family, and then it continues with the family. And then the stories. Through and through, Ruth and Boaz are about families. And the main images that we get throughout the scripture, bride, bridegroom, children, family. This is what Jesus came to restore. The nuclear family is inevitably this. And I know that you'll say, no, families look all sorts of different. But every family starts as three, right? Every family with child, at least. There's one, there's another, a man, a woman, and a child. And no matter how far I get scattered from there, that is the starting point. And I think this is beautiful for a number of reasons. The family as sacrament is the triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, witnessed in the world. Does this make sense to you? When God originated the family, he was trying to say, I'm going to make people in my image. This is what it looks like. It looks like mutual love. It looks like mutual sharing of labor and work. And it looks like creation. The family is a sacrament. When I say that, a sacrament, like we take communion most weeks, is something that's supposed to be a sign and a seal. It's supposed to be something that is real itself. So if you come in the middle aisle, you'll take bread that is mostly real. If you come on the sides and you get the cups, you'll take bread that's mostly not real. But it is still something. And then you take drink. These are real things that have meaning, just like every meal that we take does. When we're baptized, we're, uh, we're, we're dunked in water. We're immersed in water in this nice, clean hot tub. And the water is real. But it's a sign of something greater, Right? It's a sign of our death and our resurrection with Christ. Just as this is a sign of the death and the resurrection of Christ, the new covenant that we have. So a sacrament is something that is real, that holds weight and truth in and of itself, but points towards a greater reality. Your nuclear family, the mother and a father and a child, is a sacrament, if you will, at least it's sacramental, of a greater reality. First, the triune God itself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then even greater that God Not that it could be greater than God, but according to God's ambitions and imagination, something even bigger, the incorporation of his bride, us, into that relational life of love. Family itself is a sign of God. And so the Old Testament ends with the acknowledgement that things are not good enough, things are not okay. And where does the New Testament begin Turn with me if you will to Matthew chapter 1. I won't read this part. <laughs> it's a genealogy. Lots of names. What are they about? Family. Chapter 18 or chapter 1 verse 18. And this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. What do we have? A family. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Right? How's the Old Testament end? (laughs) But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage. Did our children leave? Our children left, okay? Until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So, I've already done what I needed to do, which is basically just tell you family's super important. That's what we're going to talk about, and we're going to try and live into restored family relationships as much as we can. But I want to look at these three characters because the Bible intentionally gives these three to us. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Joseph, the father of Jesus, kind of. And Jesus himself. And I want to look at them just briefly here and some traits of their role in this family as we start to understand how to build our lives around and with one another. So the first who comes up is Mary herself. Mother Mary, there's lots of things that have been said about her. Many are true. But the thing that I think is most important for us to know about Mary is this. She's a recipient of grace. Right? She's a recipient of grace. In the next week, or a future week, we're going to talk about Elizabeth and Zechariah, who, if you read the Luke account of the birth narrative... Elizabeth and Zechariah, the fathers of John the Baptist, get a lot of screen time. Elizabeth is barren. In the tradition of Sarah, Abraham's wife. In the tradition of so many others throughout scriptures and throughout our world. She's barren. She needs something to be done so that she can be healed. What of Mary? Does Mary need to be healed? Nope. She actually needs nothing as far as we know. We're not told she needs anything, except the same thing all of us need, salvation. Joseph, we read, her husband was faithful to the law. He was an upright man. He was fairly righteous, according to the standards of his day, at least. Do we know anything about Mary's righteousness prior to what God does for her? No. All we get is later her response, which we find out she's pretty gracious herself. So what's Mary's role in this? She's a recipient of grace. She's a recipient of grace. She's one who is chosen. Why is she chosen? Because God chose her. And there doesn't need to be another reason. Mary's role is to receive what God offers to her. Quite literally in her body, but also in her spirit. And just like us, our first role in family as we encounter one another is to be recipients of grace. To be ones who acknowledge that God has chosen us not by our merit, not even by our need to be healed as if our needs are greater and therefore cause us to be more deserving. But simply because God has chosen us to be a part of his family, you are a recipient of grace the same way Mary was and you carry the life of Jesus in your life Just as much. Mary. Any Marys? I'm a Mary. A recipient of grace as the life of Jesus is born in me. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Joseph. Any Josephs out there? I'm a Joseph. I'm a Joseph because I, like him, am tempted to choose my family based on the perceptions that it'll give me in the world. Joseph was an upright man. He also had, you could argue, every right in some ways to choose not to marry Mary. It says he had in mind to divorce her quietly, not knowing what the Holy Spirit had done in her. He was a righteous man. Can you imagine his reputation? He'd lived his whole life faithful to the law, and now someone who he has a planned intimate relationship with, at least according to the witness of the public, is found out to be a sinner. Is he going to commit himself to her? Is he not? What gain does it give him to stay with Mary, to stick it out? What would he gain? His city would probably reject him, at least his town, She and he now would be uh, considered among adulterers, right? It would probably be hard to work. right? Imagine if he died. Most accounts think that Joseph is fairly well of age. He dies. She becomes a widow and a sexual immoral. Where does that leave her? Where does that leave him? Where does that leave the children that they might bear together? What does he gain from sticking with her? It's a tough question. It's a tough situation. Joseph is put in the position that we are put in to choose what God chooses. Let me say that again. Joseph is put in the same position we, day after day, are put in, which is to choose who and what God chooses. What's Mary's defining trait in this story? She was chosen. By who? By God. Did he have to choose Mary too? Nope. In fact, what does the angel say to him? First off, he says, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. We're so used to hearing this when an angel shows up. Do not be afraid, right? the people castrate themselves, they fall on the ground because the angels are intimidating and scary. Sometimes the people of the scriptures try to worship the angels and they have to stop them from worshiping because the angels carry such gravity and such glory from the presence of God. This angel says the same phrase, do not be afraid, not of me, of taking Mary as your wife. Isn't that interesting? What's scarier, a big angel holding a sword and a shield or marrying somebody? Yes. (laughs) Do not be afraid to take her as your wife. And just remember, marriage is sacramental. So when I'm talking about marriage, when I'm talking about, in this case, a nuclear family being formed, I'm not just talking about marriage. I'm not just talking about a nuclear family being formed. I'll make you do it. I wasn't going to. Look around. Look around. All of these people... Every single one of them. What's their first defining trait? They have hair on their heads. Not all of us. Not all of us have hair on our heads. <laughs> no. No, what's their, what's their first defining trait as a part of the family of God? It's that they were chosen. Now look around again. You have the option to or not to choose to be a part of that family. And the question for us today is, are you going to choose like Joseph did through the will of the Spirit, through the testimony of the Spirit, to be that person's family? This here and out there are the chosen ones. Another really fascinating thing as we now blend from Joseph to the third character And I've stated it already, but maybe you didn't pick up on this. She will give birth to a son. This is verse 21. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Let me read it again. He will save his people From their sins. One more time. He will save. Who's he? Little tiny baby. (laughs) Will save. Who's people? The little tiny babies. People from their sins. Is Joseph choosing the family he's creating? Who's Jesus' dad? (laughs) What's Joseph. An adopted son. Isn't that interesting? Whose people is Joseph being invited to join? God's people. So, when we choose one another, are we choosing our family? Not really. We're choosing God's family, right? See the distinction? So when I reject somebody who God has called his family, what am I doing? I'm saying, nope. I'm not going to be a part of what belongs to you. Do you catch that? Praise God that Joseph chose that. And it also means this. If your biological family is catastrophic, right? Is divided, is broken, is hurting, is injured. Is it your family to hold together? No, it's God's family. And are you primarily a part of the family that you create by your will and human flesh? No. Your family, first and foremost, is the family that God invites you into to choose. The one he saves, his people. Family is wherever Jesus Christ is. Wherever Jesus Christ is. And where two or three are gathered, there Jesus Christ is. And then the third party in this new nuclear family that God is forming as the model for everything that he is going to be doing and trying to invite not just small but big the whole nation uh, or the, the whole world and all of its nations into is this little newborn baby Jesus. With Mary we know that we're chosen and with Joseph we can see the way that we're invited to choose the family that God has built to step into that which he chooses. And with Jesus, we see this. God himself is willing to enter into the mess of the Malachi 6 broken families and all of our messy families and all of the disgrace that comes with whatever we might have to encounter. God himself is willing to enter into it even before he can do anything about it. Right? Jesus comes as a newborn. Can't even hold his own head up. Is he afraid? He's dependent entirely on Mary and Joseph and their care for him. God himself. Is he willing to go there anyway? Yes. How long is it going to take for Jesus to be able to have any real meaningful impact on the world? Starts his ministry at 30. And even then, it takes a while. It doesn't just happen. And God showcases in the incarnation itself that he is willing to step into the mess, step into the junk, regardless of whether or not he's got a short-term timetable to fix it. Regardless of whether or not his own life is even threatened by stepping into it. So, any way that God is, he's inviting us to be. So, we now get to ask the third question We're chosen. We want to choose the things that God chooses. And by things, I mean the people who he's calling to be a part of his family. When it's messy when it's broken when the threat of hurting each other is on the table when we don't have a timetable for how long it's going to have to last that way when maybe it's going to take far 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 amounts of years into the future for us to see anything and we can't we don't even know even then are we willing to do it am i willing to say i will be your family am i willing to say to mary a young girl who's going to be rejected for much of her life i'm going to be your family am i going to say joseph This man who was righteous but now is going to take on a reputation that he didn't deserve. I will be a part of your family. Am I going to be able to go to disciples, right, from across the spectrum of poverty and of anger, right? Tax collectors and sinners and say, I'm going to be your family. The world corrupts what family means pretty aggressively, does it not? I think, just for today, we'll look at two traits of the way the world corrupts family and causes us not only to not step into the calling that God is calling us to, but even to disdain the concept. The first one is actually from this story as well. In Luke chapter 2, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. You actually see this contrast of Jesus' birth and the formation of a new family where hearts are being drawn to one another, as Malachi put it, put in contrast to what the Roman officials are doing, a census A census, for those who don't know, is when you count people. And the reason you count them is primarily two things. One, war. To bring people to war to fight on your behalf. You count the people who are in each town, right? And you say, oh, this is how many fighting men you've got, fighting women you've got. You belong to us. The second reason you take a census is to tax them. Anyone paid taxes before? So the next word that I'm about to say you'll understand, exploitation. Yes. (laughs) A census is about exploitation. One of the primary ways the world corrupts our understanding of family is by turning family into a way to exploit one another. Turning family in a way for private gain, in a way to, like the prodigal son says to his father, your money belongs to me. Like, Parents who live vicariously through their children say, your accomplishments belong to me, right? Like husbands who take advantage of their wives and wives who take advantage of their husbands, family becomes a place so quickly of exploitation where I count you among mine so that I can get from you what I need. This is not family. This is not what family is about. Family is about hearts restored to one another recognizing the grace and the goodness of God in each other. I think the other way that the world has corrupted family is by abandonment. And we begin to associate abandonment with our experience of family, for for lack of a better way to say it. And going back to the Joseph story, we can actually call this word choice, right? Right? And when I say I want the family to be the family that I choose, not like Joseph did, I'm going to step into the family that God has chosen for me, when it's going to be the family that just I pick. So exploitation, the way the government does, it says you belong here, nowhere else. I take from you what I'm going to get. Choice says my family belongs solely to my will, what I want to engage in, who I want to engage with. Joseph could have said to Mary... I don't want to be a part of your family anymore. I'm out. And both of these extremes cause incredible corruption and incredible pain and incredible destruction. And the family of God is simultaneously one that God determines, yet does not exploit us from, and we get to choose to be a part of, and yet don't really get to choose not to be a part of without some consequences, because God has picked it and God has ordained it. It is hard to explain family. And so all I'm trying to do is give us some handholds. It's hard to explain family. What really separates family from just sort of the natural evolutionary biological growth? Say you created technology that could recreate, kind of identify itself according to a name. Is that family? Well, not quite. And so I think as we continue in this series, it will become a matter of prayer as much as anything else. But it won't be exploitative, and we won't abandon each other. And we will have one last thing that this whole story is such strong evidence of, of the character of God, a joyful discontent that our family is not yet big enough. Our family is not yet restored enough. Our family is scattered our family's out there on the streets, cold and hungry. Our family's in the house next door, really big, with large windows and lights on, and yet never comes out, and is depressed and is isolated. This is why Jesus came, because God himself carries a joyful discontent in the fact that he longs for a family to call his own, and yet it's not yet big enough. And he invites us to share in that. What would it look like if our church genuinely was family first to one another? If I could look and know the names of all of you and your histories and your needs and your desires and your longings. Treat each other as family. Know that I'm welcome at every single one of your tables. I can just knock on the door and you'll open it wide. If I need a place to sleep, you'll have an extra bed for me. Or if you don't have an extra bed, at least I can crash on your floor. What is it to be family to one another? To hold each other accountable to the ways that we're hurting each other. What is it to be family to each other? To expect greater things than the ways that we're living into. Because I expect great things of my children. I expect great things of you. I hope you expect great things of me. What does it mean to be family to each other? And what would it look like for the world if the church was not exploitative, did not abandon, but was family? Joseph, I mentioned, is kind of a model of adoption in two ways. One... He's kind of the first one adopted into the family of God, as a weird thing, because he's the dad, kind of. But also because he claims, and, and rightfully so, the role as the adoptive parent of Jesus. And as, again, we explore family as sacrament, adoption is a really important concept. I was able to read um, and hear read a letter from a child to her parents, Recently, and this is the last thing I want to leave you with as we live into family with one another and with our neighbors as much as we can. This child wrote this um, for a class assignment. She said, Finally, I am grateful for my foster parents. I am grateful that when I am feeling lost, you keep encouraging me and we walk through the hard time. I am grateful that you drop me off and pick me up after school every day even though I could take the bus. I am so grateful that you let me attend the Bible study in a town an hour away every Friday afternoon making the drive for. And I'm thankful that you both decided that you want to foster me and become my parents and that you've given me a home to stay here and that you have been leading me to Christ. You are showing me about his love, his grace, and pulling me out of the darkness. And I'm thankful that both of you have been praying for me every day. I am very thankful for you giving me the second chance to begin my new journey here. I am grateful for you letting me feel I am loved. I'm very thankful that you are my parents. Even though we do not look exactly the same, God made us to be family. And I want to foster or adopt when I grow up. And I want you to know that I love you all. So God... We don't know how to do it. We fall short of each other, let alone of you. And yet all of us, sons and daughters who've wandered astray, just as all of us long to be a part of your family, and are so thankful for the love that you've shown us and the way that you've pulled us out of darkness. God, just as we long for that, we also long for that, for those who are still out there and don't know you as dad. And so, Father, we pray with you for the fulfillment of all these things that you are doing in Jesus Christ, the restoration of hearts, From parents to their children and from us, your children, to parents. Jesus, as you form this family, I pray we would look just like you. And that the world would see what is this open door invitation to redemption to love, to second chance, to new life. Amen.